What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey there, you've wandered onto the VUC, a weekly conference produced by IP Communications and VoIP Community. We would like to thank Simwood.com. Simwood can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is from Onsip.com. You can get a URL that people can click to call you at Onsip.com slash GetOnsip. Speaking of SIP, we use the best PSTN and SIP conference bridge in the world, ZipDX.com. Our website at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. And thanks to Voxbone for our world local rate dial-ins. Alrighty, thank you, Michael, for the pre-roll. And uh, we're April 14th, 2017. We're going to be talking about the future of Sims in just a second. But I want to talk to you about the future of May 8th and Camarillo World, where many of us are going to be there. And that is May 8th through 10th. It's in Berlin, Germany. Go to camarilloworld.com to check that out. It's... Um, in my opinion, the best thing that happens in Europe of its type. I'm going to turn this over to Mr. Tim Panton, Steely Dan, no, Steely Glint. <laughs> and uh, Tim, take it away and let's introduce our esteemed guest. Right. Um, where are we? Yes. Cool. I have audio. Fantastic. Yeah. No. Um, uh, so um, Rudolf Vandenberg is um, somebody who I've discussed stuff with on Twitter over the last ooh, couple of years. And we were having a discussion and uh, maybe a week or so ago. And it was one of those things where I just felt 140 characters is really not enough to get this this topic sorted out. So, um, and I think it's a, a, you know, seemed like a good opportunity to try and have a, a proper um, long form discussion about. So, um, so that was how this kind of started. Uh, and really, um, I guess we should do our traditional thing. We, we, we always ask guests this just kind of, I think mostly to slightly annoy them and embarrass them. But um, we, 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 ask them um, how you got into the technology that you're doing now like you know did your dad give you a a radio when you were five or you know how did you get started into technology what was the first first thing that got you into it oh, Lord, um, in my case uh, I, I went to 20 university studied public administration and public policy which was the least technical board there except for applied education technology and otherwise 20 university in the Netherlands is a very technical university with interesting courses like applied physics applied mathematics civil engineering electrical engineering those kinds of things. And then I was doing a course that um, had just one course of math in it and uh, nothing else. Um, but I quickly found out that I had a knack for technology and for networking. And I quickly found out that I had all the wrong friends, basically. So my friends were running the campus network to the university. Now, this was quite a funny network because in 1994, the university decided that it needed something different and it wanted an Ethernet network to all student rooms on campus, all 2000. Every student in 1994 got 10 megabits. So that was pretty decent. By the time I was asked to join the board, we had 100 megabits switched to each student room. That was around 1999. And 
funded was by far the fastest campus network in the world until Case Western Reserve University decided to give everybody 155 megabits of ATM to their student room. Except, of course, that their network cost costed $1,500 and ours costed roughly 20, 30 euro at that time, uh, which was a pretty good deal. And I was asked to join a campus network board because I had an act for technology and I understood policy where everybody else was basically a nerd and um, I was a nerd, but more on the policy side. Um, that's how I got into the business. And then friends of mine started their own data center and it came with an internet exchange point. And since the internet exchange point was a combination of the university and uh, several local governments and investment funds, and they needed a policy guy to help them out. And so that turned out to be me. And um, 2001, I started my career there working at the Dutch-German internet exchange point, just when the whole world was collapsing around us, all, the, all of the telecommunications industry. So uh, that's where I got my career start. And after that, I went five years to the Ministry of Economic Affairs, doing lawful intercept policy and later on all kinds of telecom strategy. And then after that, I uh, joined Logica in the Netherlands, uh, which was then a management consulting firm, quite well known in the UK as well. Um, I got a question from a customer, Dutch Rail. How do we move our 10,000 SIM cards that are in trains now from one mobile operator to another? And that was a very interesting question, but a very difficult one. And it turned out that um, it could have been very simple if they had their own numbers. But um, getting numbers was illegal because they weren't a public provider of telecommunications. We actually applied for numbers. So that became a whole discussion with the ministry who then asked us to write a report on it, on what possible solutions could be. And basically we said, well, government should allow uh, private virtual network operators to exist. So large-scale M2M users who manage large uh, numbers of SIM cards should be given the right to have their own IMSI numbers, to have their own phone numbers, and um, all that stuff. Um, I then left for the OECD in Paris, where we advised 34 countries on telecommunications policy, and they liked that topic a lot there because it's basically the last area of uh, market competition where telecommunications really needs to get more competition. Because in many ways, it's very weird that um, you can now have a car company with multiple million devices and they actually literally have less choice once they have picked a provider than the average consumer has because they can't switch mobile operators anymore once you're stuck. And all of that has to do with SIM card and the numbers that are on the SIM card DMP number. And all of it is attached to one provider. Um, you all may have heard of eSIM. When I started writing on this, the TSMA had just published a report on eSIM stating that it would never, ever, ever allow eSIM to exist in the market. Um, then when we were writing, all of a sudden Apple came around and said, look, we're going to try eSIM. And that caused a lot of uh, uproar in the market. And then our report came and I presented that also to the TSMA, the relevant working group. And after that, all of a sudden, there was this 3GPP working group on eSIMs and um, took them a long, long while of uh, release saying that it would be done in months. Um, to uh, finally get something going, uh, which they did last year. Basically, it's more of a GSMA standard than a 3TPP standard because they're still parties are very much against this kind of development. But that kind of got me going. These days, um, I work for Stratix with Telecom Consultancy in the Netherlands. Um work on this uh, previously. Just recently, we wrote a report on how the Dutch uh, blue light sector could get their own spectrum and um, run a private virtual network on top of uh, 
other operators in the Netherlands. So um, we will see what the government does. They likely will get eight megahertz of spectrum for their own private LTE and then buy commercially for a whole bunch of others. But that was basically our advice that that would be the best solution for them. So that's very much in line with what's happening now. And that's kind of the introduction of who I am and where I come from and what got us talking about this. Wow, I've got I've got so many notes now from that. There's just like a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but it's cool. So, so particularly the thing that that, that sparked me in, in in this discussion was um, I saw an advert this week for um, a device which I actually don't have yet because it, it's has to come from China. But it's the Orange IoT Pi. So it's a Chinese little Chinese device, and in in effect, it looks pretty much like that. Eleven dollars, um, and it's got a full actually 2G device and a full Raspberry Pi on the same board. And you look at that and you think, actually, it's going to cost me as much to put a SIM in it and, and provision it as the board costs. And, yes. and, and, and when you look at that, you think, how is that possibly going to to scale to hundreds of thousands of devices? Like you know, there's no way that the the people who make my oven or 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 my you know the the thing that opens my garage door that they want to be trying to do a deal with with phone companies. Like you know, it's just too unpleasant, and 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 certainly not provisioning SIMs. So. I'm kind of I'm very skeptical that the sim is 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 the right solution. But on the other hand, if you want kind of coverage, the way that the spectrum's been divvied up, you you're kind of obliged to go with whatever the phone companies want you to be doing. So so I'm kind of I'm torn between thinking that the, that the sim is doomed, um, if, and it's got no role in IoT whatsoever. And then on days when I look at who's got the spectrum, I think actually be whatever um, the spectrum holders want it to be and and if that means that your device costs another twenty dollars to ship then tough you'll have to go for it I mean the other thing about it and the eSIM is a really important part of that is is that there's a, a huge mechanical problem with that because I've got a set of contacts that if this is in a in a vibrating device uh, that can rust and, and and fall out whereas you you just don't want to be in that position everything else is soldered on but the identity module is detachable I mean you know how can that possibly be a good idea? So, um, yeah, I, I think there's a bunch of, of kind of really difficult stuff there. Um, well, let's, let's cut away with some of the stuff that is um, not correct and, and, and less interesting. For example, the mechanical vibration stuff. You can buy industrial grade SIMs now that you can solder on and put a dollop of uh, of glue on it and make sure that it never moves again. So that kind of stuff is is readily available from major flyers, um, probably in quantities uh, of ten thousand a pop. Um, but still, it is very well possible to build a board with a fully qualified, and that's what. The big car companies are doing at the moment already. They're right. not putting in SIM cards. Um, because in the end, what is a SIM? A SIM is nothing more than a, a, a chip that in this case comes in a bit, bit of flexible packaging. But of course, you can just solder it on if you want to. Um, just in the past that we never wanted to, now we do. Um, but the SIM, its most important part is that it provides very good authentication and therefore it allows you to build. And building is, of course, what you need for certain applications. Not for the stuff that you won't have in and around your home, but for the stuff that roams around, that's where you want some pretty decent building infrastructure to work. Because if everything can just send up data, that's no way to run a business. So authentication is very important, and particularly in high-volume situations where you have a multi-network uh, roaming situation, so where you don't have 
one network that you can use. Um, it's roughly the only way of making it work. And anybody who has tried Wi-Fi across the globe knows how hard it can be in certain places in the world to hook up to Wi-Fi with all the splash screens and the stuff that you need to work through. If you have a container or a car or anything, and it would have actually have to negotiate all the various different bits and bobs that you have to go through to get hooked up to Wi-Fi. Yes, Wi-Fi is everywhere, but um, not for IoT. It might as well not be there. For IoT purposes, it just doesn't scale. And um, SIMs provide a very good way of authentication so much so that you can pop a SIM in any car, drive it around 100 different countries, and it can hook up to any of the mobile networks there, given your provider is, is somebody big enough to have roaming in those countries. But other than that, it just works. And from a business perspective, that's a lot more interesting than uh, everything else. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, the place that that makes sense if you're talking about trains and cars, because the cost, the additional cost of, of provisioning a SIM is is you know, compared with the cost of provisioning a train is is probably not very significant. But when you start looking at, at smaller devices and where, you know, the, the supposed 2 billion IoT devices or whatever the number is from, you know, at the moment, that those devices, they, the economics of provisioning those through a mobile network and, you know, typing in the MC or whatever, however pro the process works, doesn't... It's fully automatic. That's the moment. So, so it isn't. It's fully automatic for the vendor of the device but for me as the owner of the device if 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 i want that to be part associated with me rather than like so if i want to do here's the philosophical thing which is that if 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 that device is mine rather than the owned by and rented from john deere then it's a different relationship and and the sim yes, perpetuates well, the ownership by the, the the manufacturer yes but then again if you want to own it yourself you uh, and it's on deere, you have to hack it yourself um in some ways, like um, a lot of stuff that's sold on the market just needs scale, and you don't want to be looking at 20 different descriptions for it. If you run it, you want to own it, um, but you probably need a service provider to go with it. Um, certainly, if you talk about a couple of thousand devices, if you're smaller than a couple of thousand devices, well, it becomes a bit difficult to see what your why a business case wouldn't fly unless you, because then it starts to become easy enough to do by hand yourself. You could hire a couple of students and send them. But other than that, if you run a couple of thousand devices, you're talking about scale, you talk about automatic provisioning, you talk about provisioning from the factory, and then you want strong authentication in a way that you have good control over. And so my, um, my argument with that is that you're authenticating the wrong thing. What you're authenticating at that point is the manufacturer, not the end user. Well, even there, if you pop in an eSIM, you can actually move from one provider to another. That right, would that, be. That's what happens with the iPads, I think? No, not really. Okay. iPads are, are a bad example in, in this case. Um, really depends on the, on the provider that, that you're with. Uh, and still, basically, Apple doesn't have its own credentials, so they load the credentials of the operators on, on it. Um, but if you look at um, what we advise in, in the Netherlands to the uh, uh, blue light sector, um, basically what we advise them to do is to pop in their own SIM, um, become their own provider with their own mobile core, um, and then scale it from there. And then you can work on multiple uh, networks at the same time. Uh, you 
have the full authentication in the billing, you have the reliability that the authentication is really your devices and your data. Um, in, but the Netherlands at this moment is one of the few countries in the world that allows you to become your own private virtual network operator. We now have one major smart metering in a uh, company, uh, one of the major network providers that has done that over KPM. Um, the EU is currently looking at regulation of allowing it EU-wide. But at this moment, you are more or less stuck because at this moment in the EU uh, or anywhere else in the world, you're stuck on whatever your mobile operator is willing to provide. So in the end, I think the problem isn't the SIM. The SIM is a brilliant piece of technology. One of the few things in the mobile environment that's kind of open and that could be used for very pro-competitive purposes. But all the other problems that you have with provisioning, with how you contract various networks, the difficulties of working and interworking with all those different mobile networks, that shows how um, non-competitive, non-competition supporting the whole mobile industry is. And that's one of the reasons that people often mistake the SIM as the cause for the problem, whereas it's generally the operator or the group of operators that is uh, that are the problem. Right, and, so, so, um, so you're saying it's more of the, it's the kind of, it's the face of the problem, but it doesn't actually, it's not by no means the cause. No, and it, it actually, it could have well been the solution, um, because if you think of all the Wi-Fi that we have in and around our home and how hard many IoT devices are configured for many people. Um, in principle, the team can help you with authentication to certain uh, networks that it actually could work over a whole bunch of Wi-Fi networks. Right. I mean, we, um, we're, there are people with moves afoot to, um, uh, to make that stuff a lot easier on Wi-Fi. I mean, and, and, yeah. and I, don't, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't feel that SIMs were the only way to go. I think that the thing that the other side of this that's kind of interesting is if you look at how hard, you're starting to see movement because of basically because of Sigfox and LoRa, right? uh, particularly down at the at the low bandwidth end. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's, I've heard it countenance that perhaps narrowband IoT might have a mode that doesn't require a SIM. Um, you know, and and because basically because if you're going to compete with Sigfox, you kind of have to be in the same zone. And uh, and and you know if that if you don't get to that, then uh, then you're in some sorts of trouble. Um, you know that because on the, that on the other will hand, go away. Yeah. On the other hand, if you run a Sigfox or a LoRa device, um, it either has a little bit of authentication on it already with chip eight. Um, you have the trouble of how do you manage roaming? And more or less with Sigfox and with LoRa, you're both locked into one network provided by one network provider and um, with limited roaming across the globe. Whereas if you have to run stuff large scale, LTE and narrowband IoT um, give you a much larger base to work with on a lot, much larger scale with generally three operators per country. Right. Now you just need a solution to hop between those three operators, but at least you have eight hands of competition if the industry is willing to get it right, which at least the uh, EU Commission currently sees as an option, um, and it's asking countries to make it possible to get uh, private virtual network operators in. And if you want private virtual network operators in, you need a way to authenticate them and to know where to send the bill. And um, Right. Yeah. And, you need, and that needs to be a common way for everybody, I guess. So, I mean, I think yeah. that I think that the area that, that interests me most, or, or rather where I think that is the biggest challenge is, is 
I mean, you're talking a lot about devices that physically roam. And again, trains and cars are really good examples of that. But if you're thinking about um, the kinds of places like uh, like warehouses and and um, and farms where where the things that you're monitoring may move around, but within land that you probably own. Um, yeah. And, and, and in that case, I think... think then it becomes all different. Right. We did it at the OECD. We wrote quite a bit about this and we made a diagram. It's four quadrants where you have stuff that's local and it doesn't move around a lot. And you have stuff that um, is, it, it's sold globally and doesn't move move a lot. Or you have stuff that's sold globally and moves globally. And um, you have various networking technologies for that. Um, if it's local in your building, you're not going to use something that costs you a lot for a third party user going to pop down your own network um it's much e- much easier to use either wi-fi or uh, some other uh, protocol um you could even use deck guard band for certain things, which uh, some people do. Um, there's a there's a lot of different options that you have because it's your building, it's your devices. Nobody will just log on to it. You can do the security yourself. But there is this part of the market that needs mobility, that needs roaming. And, um, well, the telecom industry hasn't done a lot right, but kind of work. And there's a reason why they're also in your bank card. And it's basically the same technology. It's really hard to crack. Right, right. It has the right level of encryption on it. It has the right level of authentication it's kind of the stuff that you can trust to throw a couple of million at and well you guys all work in a void business or, or have worked in a void business you know what fraud can do to your business case um <laughs> yes yeah, and no, you no, know I, how creative the. I, I totally see the strong authentication uh, angle of it i just like it's being in hock to the or being in the control of 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 the GSMA and through GPP that bothers me. Um, and, you know. And that's why you shouldn't look badly on the SIM, but on all the processes that the operators have created and where we need regulators to kind of move it out. It's not the fundamentals because you want strong authentication and SIM cards can give it through. But you want small companies and large companies to be able to manage their own SIM, to be able to contract one, two, three, or four mobile operators per country based on whatever their business case. Because if you run M2M, you don't want to be hooked up to one network because you'll be running it for 30 years. Right. So you want competition over those 30 years, but also you want coverage. There's no mobile network that guarantees coverage everywhere you operate Mm -hmm. but there is a pretty good chance that if you contract three or four that you cover most of your customers most of the time so it's funny you're you're almost kind of you're you're putting it back into the um almost like the 112 situation where the fact that you can dial 112 against a, a network operator even though you don't have a contract with them means that your coverage map is hugely improved over being dependent on a single operator yeah and if you run large scale iot um, that's some of the stuff that you're really looking into. There's a reason why many of the end-to-end providers uh, that the mobile operators have don't use a country-specific IMSI, or they use an IMSI of, for example, Malta or Luxembourg, which is roaming with everybody, everybody everywhere. Right. Because you can't, can't re- even rely on their own network. Um, a major one like Vodafone is to, to use this trick. Well, um, if you're Vodafone and you and you need this trick to get up working for your customers on because in the end, you know, you may be able to cover 90% of the country very reliably. But, of course, your customer will just put all their devices in the last 10% that you haven't uh, covered. Right. Because 
is that is a law of, of telecom business. No matter how well your network is connected, your customer will always be slightly out of reach and then complain about it. Yeah. So I figure it might be a good good idea to uh, open up and see if anybody else has got any any questions and um, see see who's who's got anything to to go for. Um, so guys, speak. Uh, I wanted to uh, underline. Jay Carpenter asked a good question, but I wanted to mention be- before that that I bought for the first time a uh, dual SIM phone. And uh, this kind of underlines the whole discussion in a way because, okay, so it's dual SIM, but it's not triple SIM or quadruple. <laughs> so, you know, th- this is an interesting and very finite limit. Uh, Jay asked, and he's with us, but uh, I can just ask the question uh, the, about the viable alternative to SIM. Obviously, eSIM is one. Uh, where is that thing going? What, what do you do besides the little card that you have? Um, well, for authentication, there's not that much out there. Of course, you can put your, load your own credentials on it, username, password. Um, but, you know, how secure is that? Um, and how secure does that remain over time when it can basically just be dug out of memory somewhere? Whereas um, with work with both talent and response thing. And, um, yeah, so far it has proven quite difficult to clone sims in any reliable way without any insider knowledge. And um, that makes it really hard for for uh, fraudsters to, to make use of it. So other than sims, difficult. E-SIM is, of course, something that's currently being promoted by the GSMA. Quite interestingly, it's a GSMA standard, not a 3TPP standard, which is kind of weird because we have a trade association, a lobbying mechanism basically promoting a standard, whereas the standards organization doesn't seem to be able to finish the standards. And that kind of gives you a feeling of how various operators around the world view this problem. And I once gave this presentation at the OECT for a Chinese delegation, and one of the three Chinese majors was in the room there. And and that gentleman very me that that would never happen as long as they were in business. <laughs> At which point, Chinese regulator who was there as well asked how that then would work for Chinese companies wanting to sell on a global scale if they were not willing to cooperate and provide comp- uh, a competitive alternative for Chinese companies to operate on a global scale. At which point, there was a bit of an interesting <laughs> number of glances going back and forwards. Like, um, are you sure you want that be? your position because there are issues in our country than than just whether you like it or not yeah and, uh, yeah i think that, that that's really really nice i mean if you look at i think the the only other thing that's kind of starting to emerge is the is uh if you've looked at arm putting secure elements onto arm chips that's mm-hmm. starting to look at kind of look a little bit like like putting aspects of sim functionality right on the die and and that's yeah. that's interesting i mean i haven't had a chance to play with it actively i've read the doc but not really played with it accurate, uh, actively yet. But I think that, that might actually be a kind of halfway house. But in the end, that's basically the same because the same is nothing more than an IT. And whether you put that logic on a separate chip or make it part of the talk, who cares? It is much more the fundamental knowledge behind it that it's secure. And so the question is who authenticates, who gets the numbers and who authenticates that's really a paying customer and that the bill is being picked up so that when a open operator or a Montenegrin operator or a Croatian operator um, sends you a bill that you actually go like, yes, I like that. Um, I'll pay it. And we all know the trouble there is with dialing numbers in, in Cuba 
when it comes to the VoIP network. Um, yes, there's a bill, it needs to be paid, but we're not happy about it and, and we don't really trust it. Mm. And if you want to do this on a global scale, you need your authentication. And whether that is stuck in a sock or in a separate, nobody really cares. There's much more the whole process around it that makes sure that everybody believes that this is the correct answer. And but, well, that's the one thing that GSM has done really, good, really well. Could could we just back up for a second and just look at for people like my like me? Uh, I I have an idea what a sim is, but can we talk about you arrive someplace where there are towers? Operator X is there. Um, what is the dialogue with the sim? There's there's a number. Each phone has its number, and my phone has two numbers because it has two sim slots. Uh, ah. That's the I can't I don't know how yes. to pronounce it, but I know the number. Can you give us a quick uh, view of what happens when I turn my phone on in in America and I've got a T-Mobile SIM in it, for example? So basically what a, uh, a phone first starts doing is uh, sending its MC number. And the MC number, International Mobile Driver Identity, it is digits and the first three digits identify the country and the second two or three identify the mobile operator. And this is handed out by the mobile operator of the, uh, uh, by the regulator of the country. And um, based on those five or six digits, all the traffic then gets routed. So um, mobile then checks um, in, the, in the US, who does this belong to? Well, if it's themselves, then it's easy. But if it doesn't belong to them, they look at the second list and go like, with which set of uh, mobile country codes, mobile network codes, we have a roaming agreement. Well, if it's one, two, three, four, five, and we have an agreement, then yes, um, I will send the data, the authentication data onto their HLR. They will authenticate. And um, if it comes back that, yes, we like that customer to be present on your network and we will gladly pay the bill, then presto, you get access to the network. If they report back, no, that customer doesn't have roaming credentials, then it drops off. If they don't recognize the first five digits of the MD, then um, your phone will uh, try another network and try another network and try another network. And then after a while, uh, it will tell you that it doesn't find an available network. But basically, it's all the first five digits. Somebody, meaning a government, has authenticated you to have those first five digits and then to issue your own numbers. And uh, after that contract is signed between operators where those numbers are, are exchanged and signaling point codes in the whole shebang, and then life becomes easy. It's about the email with part of your phone. It's also not about your phone number as such. Oh, of course, that does get exchanged as well. But it's really the MP that is the part of the authentication and the thing that, that operators build each other on. Okay. Thanks for that. So we've got Mr. Bodhi finally. He's finally arrived in yes. in, in the back cave or wherever it is. Um, Bodhi counters plus one. Yes. Oh. We're, so 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 James, I don't know how much of that you managed to listen to on on, on your path through. Um, Little tiny fragments, and I, I wanted desperately to listen, um, and it was very frustrating. So I've done the fastest transit from Salisbury out to the country um, that anybody's ever experienced. Cool. No, I, I, I mean we were we were basically just we were literally just us talking about the the process of how sims relate to the the network and and to what extent i mean the the point that rudolph had made that kind of came as i knew it but i hadn't like really added it up was that the the sims don't represent necessarily um like they're not necessarily the problem it's more to do with the carrier attitudes and that the sims could actually be a solution to to 
inducing more competition in this space. Um, Indeed. Um, In fact, just uh, if we're punching terminology, it's worth pointing out that the SIM or USIM actually is a lump of code that sits upon a receptacle normally known as a UICCID. So the little thing that you put in your phone is not actually, well, I suppose it is the SIM, but the SIM is the code or the content of the receptacle that you put in. Mm. So that's a UICCID, a universal yeah. <laughs> whatever it stands for. Yeah, and in the end it's basically guaranteed by companies like Jumalco and Obertour that it's secure and they use basically the same technology that they use for your bank card and your credit card. It's more or less the same tip. So the point behind it is um, this isn't easily hackable. You, you can trust a lot of money on it and um, that is what makes it so cool. That's basically what you can use to build global commerce on. Unfortunately, if you want to buy roaming at the moment, it is desperately hard. You can ask the guys from, well, Truefile or similar company, how hard it is for them to get roaming deals around the world. Um, but that has nothing to do with the technology. If this was the IP world, um, it would have likely have been a lot easier and we would have seen a lot more competition. But um, these companies have created very interesting processes whereby making it very, very hard for others to get access to their network. And um, it doesn't have to be because roaming in itself. You know, look, the network doesn't care what IMSI you use. It, the network itself is IMSI agnostic. It doesn't even recognize the own IMSI as own IMSI because it's just a number and a billing relationship. Indeed. The other thing and we, which where stuff needs to go. Yeah, the other thing we mustn't forget is it's more than just the IMSI. You've also got uh, sets of cryptographic key variables that go yep. with the IMSI. And uh, whilst it's possible to push new IMSIs dynamically across the air into a into a SIM, um, the issue comes with um, which set of cryptographic key variables do you use to authenticate with and, and where's the other half? Yeah, which... and so in the end, that, that's where companies like Jamalto make their money in guaranteeing that nobody knows the exact cryptographic key that you use and that, that's all secure yeah, I and therefore... Think that probably Jamalto is a very bad uh, example to use. Yeah, okay, well um, you use Obafor or any of the other ones, but um, yeah, this <laughs> way, Malta was one of the few companies willing to talk about this, even off, uh, even on the record. The other ones weren't willing to discuss this ever at all when I was writing about this. Yeah, right. So uh, the bit I missed was what the solutions are. What 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 the conclusions? Regulation. The regulator has to force. I mean, I'm putting words into Rudolph's mouth, but basically, the regulator has to has to push the more um, support for this kind of uh, for the ability to run your own uh, mobile networks um, or, or mobile virtual networks, even, and issue your own SIMs and numbers to la to. Uh, more capability, more organizations. So things like, I mean, the example that we started out with was the, the Dutch Railway um, and the and the Blue Light Services of people who, yeah. who should be running their own networks. Oh, yeah, I, that's a bit that I did hear. Rudolf, did I hear you right when you said that your recommendation was that the, um, the railways or the Blue Light Services should have their own dedicated spectrum? Did I hear that right? Yeah, uh, yes and no. In the Netherlands, we had, had a consultation or we actually have an active consultation on the future of mobile and what to do with the 700 megahertz. And um, there is two times five and two times three uh, megahertz of spectrum available there, which is kind of like a guard band spectrum that isn't easily commercially used and that doesn't have much commercial value because there's three times 10 available as well. Now, um, the government was wondering whether it could give two times 10 to the blue light sector, like, for example, the Swedes are contemplating at the moment, or if, for example, that 
two times eight available could be used for the blue light sector. Mm. And uh, the blue light sector, of course, already has their own CDMA network. And what we advised them to do was kind of come up with a hybrid model where kind of eight can be used for uh, dedicated blue light sector stuff when, for example, you have a very big event and uh, the airwaves are full and they still have a little bit of their own spectrum where um, they won't be blocked by any of the other uh, people that are using their phone at the moment. But at the same time that they buy commercially on the market from one to three or four mobile operators access to their commercial networks, not just on the 700 megahertz, but also on the 800 to 900. And uh, they have the flexibility of moving in and out. And we already have some experience with that in the Netherlands with uh, tech guard band network with the Dutch Department of Defense, which is more or less done the same without using their own spectrum dedicated. But at least the Dutch Department of Defense was the first one, first private operator to get their own MV uh, ranges in the Netherlands and actually installed them on, on Navy ships and uh, in Afghanistan. And when I actually told this to the ITU in, Afg- uh, in Geneva when we were discussing that the ITU needed to rib- liberalize access to MV numbers, the, one of the ITU people uh, reminded me that it was uh, against ITU rules for a country to run its mobile network in a foreign country, which point I told them, well, well I don't know. I mean, Department of <laughs> cares a lot. There are a lot of mobile networks out there. Um, and just from my personal experience, going back, what, 20 years almost, um, I was uh, putting... 2G base stations on the back of C-130 Hercules um, in my previous life. So so we deployed um, 2G GSM, um, what, 18 years ago, militarily? Kind of same word, what the government did. did, and they also use it for emergency. They actually have a whole emergency unit that can set up when they want to. And it's kind of what we fought for the blue light sector as well. And then they can just piggyback. But not like the UK has done, where you just dump everything towards the EE to actually create a competitive model. Yeah, I'm I'm not hugely comfortable with that um, for a number of reasons. Um, anyway, did you consider, um, from, from a spectrum management point of view, um, license shared access, LSA, where um, where you can dynamically uh, issue leases for spectrum um, as it's needed um, and then release the spectrum when it's not needed. Was that uh, a consideration for you? Um, not in this report that much because it's not a consideration for the type of spectrum that's being used. So there is, um, in the Netherlands, there's actually quite it's quite advanced with um, uh, private use and, and unlicensed use or for example of guard bands or the deck guard band where in the UK you needed a license in the Netherlands you didn't need a license to run your own LTE network in the deck guard band and that's in, in um, the Netherlands now is it permitted to run narrow LTE in deck guard band yeah, has been for the last seven years am, am I right well, in thinking that hospitals and people like that do uh, run their own networks in that way in the Netherlands yeah quite a lot yeah companies like Radio Access, they have uh, a very nice business out of it. In UK, it's only become possible in the last year to run LTE. The problem is um, the deck guard band is just a little bit on the narrow side to do anything um, meaningful with LTE. Uh, the Dutch government actually widened it a little bit. Oh, good old Dutch government. I I wish we had uh, the Dutch regulator working right the way across Europe. It'd make life a lot easier, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, sometimes, but, you know, uh, I've worked for a telco as well. There was a lot to complain about as well. Um, Ofcom does some stuff well. 
other, in this case, the Dutch government did quite uh, all right. Yeah, um, I, I was amused to see uh, see that the, um, the the Dutch railway was was involved in in the those early discussions, um, and and it reminded me of, of back in the day they ran the first the backbone for the the Dutch public internet um, that was run on on uh, on the on the Spoorweg's um, uh, fiber spare fiber that was running along the tracks, and um, that was before they were even private. And then, uh, I, because I think if I remember rightly, the telecom people really weren't interested. It was too, you know, they, they, it was too difficult for them. Um, but the Spolvech uh, were interested and went for it. Yeah, well, actually, they were one of the founders of one of the mobile networks in the country, which was partly so the BT network, BT Telford, was a joint venture with the trail, and it ran most... Uh, on, on the fiber that the rail had between various uh, cities, and that's mm. how it did all its backhaul uh, by part KPN in that respect. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Railway communications are a bit of a hot potato at the moment because, uh, as you're probably aware, uh, the replacement for GSMR, the railway GSM, is. Um, bubbling at this moment in time, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, I attended a, a working group where where the, all the European rail operators were going. Oh, we need at least uh, five to ten megahertz of dedicated spectrum, and I, and and I was part of a, a group were going. No, you don't. What you need is uh, license shared access with um, priority access in the areas close to the railway lines. The big problem with uh, um, with assigning big lumps of dedicated spectrum is that it kind of clogs up the spectrum um, yeah. right away across the country and uh, and for the railways I guess only about 5% of the land mass uh, needs to be covered uh, and so a much more efficient mechanism is to um, give the railways priority access uh, to license shared access spectrum in the areas where they need it but everywhere else everybody else can bid for that spectrum and use it much more or, may, or maybe just put them on commercial networks and make them private virtual network operators and yeah, I, I very much like the idea of having a narrow dedicated signaling channel which you can use uh, for authentication signaling purposes and uh, where you can then uh, using um, the LTE um, prioritization mechani- mechanisms uh, you can preempt service on commercial networks uh, um, might well be possible as well. But in order, you know, to do that, in order to do that, you need a really good dedicated um, signaling channel to uh, allow you to do that. I think it's still very um, meaningful to see that a lot of the M2M stuff that rail companies are doing isn't actually on TSMR. No, indeed. Well, I, I think the, the favourite at the moment is this, what is it, the it is 20 gigahertz uh, trackside to train um, mechanism. It's, it, I can't remember what, what frequency band. Oh, in, in, in the Netherlands. Just them. Okay. Well, well, what we were talking about was the trackside to train communications, which oh, not only by the train signalling, but also by the people on the train. So conceptually, what you do is you put uh, small cells in the train, uh, operating as multi-operator neutral host mode, uh, and then run a fat backhaul. Oh dear, Rudolph. Oh yeah, it's still there. It's just Tim making noises. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then you run a, a fat pipe. Thank you. A fat pipe <laughs> off the front and back of the train. Um, I'm not winning here, am I? Which Alexa. Which, which, no, don't you dare. Uh, which then allows every, uh, everybody to um, use their mobile devices whilst on the train. So if you can get something like a, a gigabit feed onto the train, um, that 
can probably provide enough backhaul to run multiple multi-operator neutral host small cells in each tra- in each carriage. Yeah, we'll see. If, uh, yeah, um, there's multiple options there, so we'll see where, where that goes in the market. Uh, yeah, but uh, I think this, this question of having big chunks of dedicated spectrum is uh, is just an old-fashioned concept, and we really ought to try and avoid that. Normally, I agree. Um, with the blue light sector, it might be a little bit different because they have very particular needs, um, which I can actually sympathize with, given that we have had a situation in the Netherlands where, um, you know, networks were overloaded and the police couldn't report back to their head offices anymore and that kind of stuff. And yeah, but there, be- there are mechanisms in both 2G, 3G and, and 4G to allow uh, prioritised access to emergency services. So as long as that's managed properly, that should not be a not should not be an issue at all. I think that the, the part of the back data for that is that, was it Vodafone who lost coverage for, basically lost half the network in the Netherlands for about a week. Uh, yep. Where are we? Ten years ago, maybe now. Um, oh, not, not even. This was 2012. Five years okay. ago. I, I was thinking of it. They had a fire in a in a in a major switching point, and basically they lost they lost half their network um, for yep. for a long time. And uh, and if you were relying on that, you'd be you'd be stuck basically. Um, yeah, and so that's one of those things that was very much prominent in in the thinking of the. Uh, emergency services in the Netherlands that you can't have that. You can't build a network like that. And in some ways they have now with CDMA, uh, not CDMA, I mean uh, C2000 Tetra, uh, which they run themselves. And it's very much, of course, dependent upon themselves. But one of the things that we put forward was that, look, you can now buy access on four different commercial networks and actually get much of what you want in a way that if somebody fails, because you have your own SIM cards, because that's where it all starts, you have your own devices, you can actually buy access. And this is a that's currently unused, that because of all the various rules and regulations would be unused. The French are now moving, uh, the French were basically the first ones to come up with this idea. The Germans are moving this way as well, the Dutch are thinking about it as well. Um, it's a band that um, might be used in the Middle East for commercial purposes, so probably we will end up with silicon that can use it and that uh, would be a very interesting solution to a uh, to a problem um, yeah the challenge with it of course is that you you still have to deploy another complete countrywide radio network which is no 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 you just use the radio network of the operator that you're on that makes it actually quite nice so you don't have to build out in the Netherlands between two well, and three this dedicated spectrum yeah because the antennas can use it because it's in the same band as all the other 700 megahertz LTEs. Yeah, but how, what about the, the not, spot, not spots? I suppose not spots are less of a problem in uh, in places like the Netherlands because we tend not to have valleys and... and uh, no, no we, we actually do have those problems and sometimes even in the city centre of Amsterdam. So we actually have 50% more antennas for our Tetra network for, for the emergency services that were initially uh, envisioned. Yeah. Yeah, in, in um, fact, uh, urban coverage is a big, big problem. The mobile network operators tend to deny that it is a problem. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, Canary Wharf um, in in the, in the city of London, or just outside. Well, nobody lives there. Uh, nobody lives there, that's true. But all of the mobile network operators claim 100% coverage on all modes. And you look on, on the map and it's, it's 100% green. There are no not spots in Canary Wharf. However, you go into a building 
Um, if I told you that something around 50% of Canary Wharf estates, so in the buildings, has little or no mobile coverage. Yeah. Uh, that, but, but there are a couple of factors there, James, one of which is, is simply height, that most of these network coverage diagrams are based on, on, on ground level. Ground level, absolutely right. And, and the other one is based on metalised windows. Yeah, the other factor is uh, the uh, the loss that you incur going into window. I mean, the standard uh, loss um, that is used normally to uh, estimate uh, loss going into building is of the order of 15 dB. But um, going into a, a bank type building in Canary Wharf, the average is closer to 40 dB isolation as you go in. Uh, and the reason for that is the banks are really, really don't want to um, have people sitting outside listening to their Wi-Fi or other emissions. So they tend to um, make their buildings into um, Faraday cages. Yeah, and even if you don't have that, in 2004-2005, the Ministry of Economic Affairs in the Netherlands moved their Department of Telecommunications into a different building in the middle of The Hague. And um, we had full signal, but we had continuous dropout. Why? Because we had full signal, and the device would try to tune on to whatever was the strongest signal. So the moment you turned your head, you moved to a different antenna. But there is this mechanism in most mobile networks that tells the network to drop you after you have hopped uh, an X amount of antennas in a certain amount of time. So either you were advised to sit very, very quietly and very, very still. Of course, nobody does using a mobile phone. Um, in the end, they had to provide indoor coverage in the building, not because it ha- it lacked signal, but because it had too much signal. And it needed slightly more signal that it wouldn't latch on to anything else anymore. Yeah, and this this really is another, what we've got to get to is um, regulation whereby um, people who own buildings can actually deploy their own mobile infrastructure inside the building, I think. I remember discussing this with, with uh, the, I think it was the fire chief in San Francisco, and he was saying that that, uh, that this, this joining those two topics up about coverage and, and blue light, he was saying it'd be really interesting to run a, be able to run a femtocell on the back of his fire truck. So if he can turn up an in, at an incident and turn on his own coverage, um, yep. which, you know, I, mean, I don't think they ever got around to doing it, but it was an interesting conversation. Well, that probably wouldn't help you in Canary Wharf. As soon as you go into the building, you lose, lose coverage again. Yeah, no, but but this idea of being able to run coverage where you where you needed it, but still be part of the big network is, is an interesting, and basically only the regulator is going to be able to force that behaviour. Yeah, and the big MNOs will not like it at all. How would you back well, all that off a truck? Exactly. Well, yeah, um, don't know. We didn't get that far in the discussion. Although, I mean, if you're only on 2G, if you're doing 2G voice and, and, and SMS, you can backhaul it, you know, pretty trivial. Yeah, but people actually. don't want 2G, Tim. That's the problem. They all want data. I know they and do. And they want yes. data with some form of quality of service. But here's the thing. In the emergency, actually, you'll settle for for, for voice and, and SMS rather than nothing. Those are your choices. Yeah, but no, you, you you want all the data and that's why we advise them to use their own eight megahertz and then actually you could use that in combination with a lot of different stuff you can actually hook up your own um uh, cell or, or microcell uh run it in your own eight megahertz use the other stuff to backhaul it um there's a lot, lot of flexibility that you get once you have your own spectrum and this is kind of important so there's a good chance that uh, that government will move this way at least it's what it's currently considering yeah. and it, it's not like you're locking up the whole market it's just a little bit of flexibility that's yeah. basically also what would um this is where I, come, I come back to this concept of spectrum on demand where you have a mechanism which issues leases short-term leases 
on chunks of spectrum as you need it. Yeah, um, we, we'd, we'd, re- we'd really like uh, spectrum leasing for uh, for the kind of events that we go to for the conferences and stuff. I mean, like like Camellia World, which is going to be in Berlin in where are we? Three weeks time or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also uh, for Klucon in in Chicago, it'd be great to be able to run our own spectrum. Um, and 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 you know. And also, presumably, at things like festivals and whatever. But um, but that doesn't, you know, it's simply impossible. Band. Come to the Netherlands and do deck guard band. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So the, has the, has, I've forgotten what the hacker camp is called, the Dutch hacker camp that happens every few years. I wonder if they've it, run it, it. It never has the same name. Uh, okay. In 2001, it was called Hacking at Large 2001, HAL 2001. Right. And it was at uh, 20 universities. So basically, it was a, my internet exchange then. And... Uh, um, but yeah, it has called hacking and progress and um, several other things. But it's every four years, and the organizers are good friends. Um, it will likely be uh, very soon again. So, uh, but there's a perfect play place with, to uh, run your own network. Yep, yep, and they do. Okay, cool. I mean, I know the CCC have in the past in uh, in Hamburg, <laughs> but but I think they struggled to get. Uh, get spectrum this year i think they did in the end but i can't remember the end of the story there but um yeah german uh bureaucracy is interesting the way they they operate is that if it's not in the rule book mm-hmm. you can't do it whereas in uk we tend to work the opera other way around which is if it's not in the rule book you you can get away with doing it well i mean it used to be that yep. that spectrum was was uh allocated it was allocated to one of the carriers and they were they they were happy for it was test spectrum and they were happy for the cc to use it but I think a couple of the exploits a couple of years earlier had embarrassed them and so it was difficult for the technical people to 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 say yeah okay fine because it suddenly became a publicity thing as well yeah. um, so well, it, it kind possible. of escalated it, it is possible to get Spectrum I've had Spectrum on a number of occasions and um, just through the regulator you can apply for an, an experimental license uh, and you can do well virtually anything you want as long as you don't charge money for the services yeah I mean we were, we had Spectrum in the Moscone Centre in down San Francisco for a week during Google I/O, so it's it's doable provided, as you say, you're not going to make money out of it. And I think you have to show what the experiment is. Like if you're not like testing something, then it's kind of hard to justify. Yeah. Well, going back to SIM cards a little bit because that's what all of this started in the end. Germany was interesting because um, we heard in the OECD report that it was one of the two. OECD countries that didn't allow MVNOs to have their own SIM card. So a German MVNO couldn't get the MC numbers, couldn't get it on mobile country code or mobile network code. Um, and only recently has that been changed in, in German law. But um, if you then look at what kind of competitive effect it has for uh, MVNOs, that they would be completely hooked up to the mobile network that they were uh, uh, located on. And that was quite an interesting uh, thing to see and very anti-competitive in many ways. So. Cool. Well, I think since we've we've, we've done our hour, it would be good to um, kind of have a last question or two here and there. Um, I don't know if Kathleen's got a got a, a question <laughs> or, 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 or Michael or anybody else. Um, and then we can, uh, we can maybe uh, wrap up Randy's abandoned ship or oh no he's showing the coming no, in your world somebody mentioned to come in your world and yeah it was me I said three weeks I'm not far yeah, off 20, 20 days 13, 13 hours 48 minutes and 45 4 3 2 1 seconds okay Time so any go. questions anywhere I'm looking at Kathleen I'm looking at Andy. Andy Andy's been here taking notes I watched him 
So, uh, well, I, Andy, I'm, I bet you've got a question or two, haven't you? I'm not particularly. I've been actually more more interested to, about the uh, discussion argument, whatever you want to call it, uh, about difference between using eSIM um, and uh, UICCs. Um, but nobody mentioned soft SIMs at all. So, uh, are those do you, do you think pretty much dead? I mean, I wouldn't want to trust a, a bit of software running on another process on a system on a chip on a board. Well, um, yeah. the question is how you protect the cryptographic key variables. Um, yeah. So you've, you've got to be able to secure them in such a way that uh, unscrupulous people can't extract them and uh, and duplicate them or do nasty things with them. Which basically says soft, soft sims are a non-starter. Well, yeah. I think there's a there's a border there's a there's a border there in terms of just what I was saying earlier about the arm making uh, secure elements. I think that the, if if you could get the secure element with the right semantics that would support um, a soft sim, then you could do that. Now, whether you still think that's a soft sim or whether you call it no, a sim is like semantics. Then it isn't, then it isn't a soft sim anymore. Then it's basically just an eSIM in a different piece of uh, of silicon. But it basically needs something hard coded into the silicon to do yeah. all the authentication. So uh, there are other mechanisms that you could use actually to um, for authentication purposes or use factors uh, in an authentication system. I don't know whether you've seen the the thing where um, uh, a bit of computer hardware is fingerprinted and you actually use um, that that hardware fingerprint um, which is actually in the silicon um, yeah. as part of the authentication process so it's not the entire authentication process but it's, it's a factor and un- unless you have access to the actual physical silicon um, it's very difficult to ascertain what that what those those variables are in the uh, in the authentication stream yeah in the end, up that that basically ends up being the same uh, for for all means and purposes. So um, yeah, yeah, you need some kind of guarantee that it works, and somebody can sign off on it and, and stake a reputation on it. So um, what I heard from uh, major car manufacturers is that they want their own. Uh, they like the idea of having their own SIM card because of the competition uh, possibilities that it gives them. But I also want an eSIM because if you own multiple brands, um, say you want to sell, say you're BMW and you want to sell. Mini or your Volkswagen, and you want to sell Seat um, or whatever. Well, General Motors, and you want to sell Opel. Um, General Motors has just created an interesting problem for itself because it's actively promoting OnStar-based cars in Europe at the moment. Just when it sold Opel, Vauxhall to uh, Peugeot. Now, what do they do with those devices that are on there for the next fifteen years? Um, how free are they to move? Well, well I think the answer that is using the old technology. There, uh, there has to be some kind of physical s- switch of something like a sim no but they can't in, in the US they actually had the problem when they moved from Verizon to AT&T and all the old stuff remained on AT&T and all the new stuff but also remained on Verizon I think and all the new stuff was on, on AT&T um, welcome to the, uh, to the modern world of being a major car manufacturer and only millions of devices and mobile operator than the average teenager does it's, yeah, uh, w- welcome to the world of IoT um, that's my yeah, my feeling. Yeah, well, did, did you see, by the way, that the the, the cookers got hacked? The Arga, the famous English cooker, they got uh, they got hacked. How can an Arga be be hacked? I so apparently you can get you. Apparently, James, they do a connected model of the Arga, and they had very weak authentication about how you. It comes with a SIM card, bless it. And yeah, but I am not. I will put. Well, most Argas live out in the country. And, I, I, uh, James, 
I found it myself, but it's 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 well sourced. This anyway, we, we'll we'll do that in the section when we've cut the recording. Um, but but uh, I did want to get in a, a, a question about about Clucon, and uh, maybe Kathleen could tell us what we can expect from Clucon, which is coming up in where are we? A couple of months, August. Yeah, August seventh uh, through the eleventh. Um, we're pretty excited about it. We've got some really cool things planned. A lot of really great night activities. So um, and this year actually we're kind of excited because we have a boat party um, that'll be taking place on Thursday evening. So for those of you that are, uh, stick around a little bit. And then um, I guess the biggest thing for ClueCon is if you want to speak, get your speaking proposals in. Uh, we're closing that on May 1st so that we can make the schedule and people can see who to expect. Um, so yeah. So are you doing an IoT theme thing uh, this year or not? Because I know you did a couple of years ago. We are actually. Our uh, The first day, Monday, our hackathon, we're going to have some really cool stuff for you guys to play with. Um, last year, uh, we had a little competition to see what people could build and I think the winner ended up building a Wi-Fi coffee ordering device that they worked with FlowRoute, who is uh, providing coffee, which you could, you know, text in and tell them where you were and get your coffee delivered to you. And these guys took a little, um, I think they took a Raspberry Pi and ended up making a Wi-Fi enabled ordering device with little LEDs. So you could tell like um, when it went through and or if it didn't work or whatever. So it's really cool. We're going to do that again this year. So and actually we might expand upon it a little bit as well. So be sure yeah, to join. Do, uh, do jelly bit jelly bears as well as coffee <laughs> yeah those are good actually we'll have to we'll have to figure out where bears, yeah. to get them. or whatever the chicago equivalent is <laughs> i'm not sure little jelly pizzas would be a good idea <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, I recommend uh, the boat trip by the way i did a boat trip around chicago um, a couple of years ago and uh, the architecture from the water's viewpoint is just spectacular um really really good to to see so i can encourage people to to join in on that um it, it was great yeah this will be this will be really cool because I guess um, what you do is you go up and you kind of they take you through the architecture a little bit and um, then they take you back out into the lake and you get to watch sort of the sunset behind all the buildings um, as you sort of drive around the, the lake a little bit and it's gorgeous and there is a bar on board for those of you that would like to drink a little bit as well so it's going to be really neat and can we just confirm we are doing dangerous demos this year we are we do we have a lot of uh, fun stuff in the works so yeah uh, join us for that like if you make something cool during the hackathon day feel free to uh, incorporate that into your dangerous demo okay with that um, we're going to go to the uh, mature audiences only segment. Thank you, Rudolph. It was great having you, and we hope to have you back again one of these days. I've been watching you forever on Twitter. Cool. Thanks, guys. It was really fun. Yeah. It was great to have you. Kathleen, as always, thank you. And thanks to everybody uh, and even the regulars. What the heck? Thank you, guys. It's nice to have you, too. I just want to remind people we will be at Camillo World, Camillo World, May 8th in Berlin. Berlin is a fantastic city. Try to make your way there if you can. Also, one wanted to do a quick uh, shout out on the next week. Dan Jenkins, friend of the show, as they say, uh, will be here. And the week after that, Algo VPN. Michael uh, will be running that thing. And I just signed our guest, Vlad Markov, for Cisco Spark the next week, May 5th. So we're hopping again, folks. This is a good season for UC. Thank you, everybody. IP Communications and VoIP community. We are out of here, but we're still talking. You just won't know it. Hey, that was the bleeding edge of the IP communications and VoIP community. We're at VUC.me on the web. Thanks to Simwood.com, who can turn you as a developer into a telco. 
Our hosted PBX is provided by OnSIP.com. The site at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. We use ZipDX.com for our wideband, full-featured conference bridge. And our local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. Every Friday, 12 noon Eastern Time, see you next week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.